I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Roger Berkowitz, is a professor of political studies and human rights and the founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and the Humanities, both at Bard College. He's the author of The Gift of Science, Leibniz and the Modern Legal Tradition, an account of how the rise of science led to the divorce of law and justice, and the editor of Revenge and Justice, a special issue of Law, Culture, and the Humanities. In October of 2021, the RN Center hosted a conference entitled Revitalizing Democracy, Sortition, Citizen Power, and Spaces of Freedom, about a mode of government that originated in ancient Greece with great potential for our own times. The ideas discussed in this conference is the subject of today's interview. Roger, welcome to Delving In. It's a pleasure, Stuart. Nice to be here. In many countries, democracy is in serious trouble. And to quote the subtitle of your conference, we need somehow to revitalize democracy by creating new structures for making political decisions. So let's first talk about the problem and then about the potential cure, so to speak. But first, tell us how you first learned about this topic and how in in a short time, I think, your interest grew strong enough to host a conference about it. So there's a lot of questions in that first one. Yeah, that's meant to be open-ended. <laughs> Let me say that the conference uh, was looking at a crisis of democracy, which is, as you said, I think increasingly recognized, and different ways to to think about approaching it. But I think what's most important is understanding what the crisis is, because I think too many people, while many people know there's a crisis, they don't really understand what the crisis is. Democracy has always been an unruly business. Most democracies don't last very long, certainly not in in ancient classical Greece and certainly not in medieval Italy, which are the two sort of great periods of democratic rule in, in, in the history of at least the Western world. None of those democracies last very long, and they don't because the people are unreliable. The people are often swayed by mobs. They're swayed by emotions and feelings. And democracy is a questionable endeavor if you want to create a stable world order. Just to interrupt a second, we're talking about, at that time, of city-states. Exactly. Particularly Athens and Greece, and then Florence and uh, Venice. and Exactly. And there were never really much larger democracies than that. Now, the founders of the United States knew that and didn't really want to create a democracy. There's no mention of democracy in the Constitution or much in the Federal Papers, except in a negative way, the Federalist Papers. What they saw themselves as creating is a Republican form of government, small r, Republican. And that is mentioned in the Constitution, which says that what's guaranteed is the Republican form of government. And what is a Republican form of government? It's a complicated question and it's actually been debated and there's not a whole lot of agreement on it. But the fundamental idea of a republic is that it's a res publica, a public thing. And the premise of that is that a republic is a form of government where two things are present. One is the people rule, there's self-government. And two, the people put the interest of the public thing, the res public, over their private interests. And because of that, it was long held by people like Montesquieu and many others that the core, the core requirement for a republic was that it be virtuous. Virtue was thought to be the, the principle of republican governments. And since virtue required that people shared a virtue, 
it was thought that only small city-states could be republics because the people would have a sense of the common interest that held them together. The American founders saw that and knew that, and they came up with a truly innovative solution that no one had ever thought of before, largely the product of, of James Madison's thought. But his idea was that if you could create a large republic, you would lose the idea of virtue. People would not be virtuous because across the enormity of what was then the United States, which was tiny compared to what we are now, you wouldn't be able to have people agree on morals or civics or anything like that. But what you would do is create enough different factions and enough different power centers that any one, if it got too powerful, the others would gather together and stop it. And the idea behind this was what they called federalism. Uh, the idea that not only would you divide and conquer power on the national level, so you would have a, an executive branch with the president, a legislative branch with the Congress, and a judicial branch with the courts, but then you would have the states, and then you'd have counties, and in each state and then county, you'd have different bodies. So the typical way we're taught this in American civics is checks and balances, but it wasn't just checks and balances. It was multiple sources of power. And I think I want to emphasize that. And by power, something very specific, groups of people coming together and acting together for a common purpose. So you could have New Yorkers acting together and you could have people from Massachusetts and people from Georgia and people from Alabama. And then you could have people from a county acting together because they get together and they form a government or a city or a town. And all these different power sources, because people act together, allow them to form power, to mobilize common public resources for the common good. And the idea was in that kind of a government, the people would always be active. They would engage in public life. So in small towns, people would go together and go to town hall meetings and they'd decide, should we be hiring a teacher or a police officer or building a road or building a school? And they would get involved in government. And what Madison and the founders thought is that by devolving power down into multiple sources, you could keep a kind of virtue, multiple virtues, and also prevent any one power source from overtaking the others. Uh, and that was the idea. It's not a democratic idea, although it involves self-government, because it's not the rule by a single majority, which they thought could become demagogic and tyrannical. It's the rule by dozens and hundreds of small majorities, each of which rules in its own area and each of which can combine into larger areas. But the idea again being there would be no one who could take over everything. If you understand that history of the United States, the crisis of democracy we're in is one in which people have lost a sense of the public good and the loss a sense of power and acting in public. We have increasingly turned over our running of our governments in the United States and around much of the world to mostly, to, to some degree, national elected officials, but even more, I would argue, to unelected bureaucrats and civil servants. 
the number the number of civil servants, people in the civil service, the number of of bureaucrats has been growing astronomically for the last seventy to eighty years. They uh, have taken over much of the day to day operation of the government. And the greatest failure uh, in the United States is the failure of the legislative branches, both nationally and locally, uh, which have largely abdicated their role of governing and increasingly simply passed laws that give the agencies, the civil servants, the right to set policy. They've done that for a whole load of, host of reasons, but the main one, I think, is that is that taking difficult positions is counter to getting elected. And as a result, they simply pass the buck to the administrative agencies to, to deal with the hard and more complicated decisions. And there's this, what I would call, and what Hannah Arendt called the disempowerment or entpraxisization, and they use an old Greek word of praxis, taking away of the foundation of a Republican spirit, which is that the people act together to govern. And as they have done that, there's been a sense of of disassociation, of a feeling of disempowerment, a feeling that the government is not answerable to the people, a feeling that they don't have much at stake, and a loss of respect for the government, uh, a loss of sense of participation in the government, and a sense that the government um, isn't representing them. And I think what's amazing about uh, our current moment is that you see the people on the right who feel this, who feel they've been disempowered. You feel see people on the left who feel this, who feel they've just been disempowered. You feel minorities, you feel majorities. White people think they've been disempowered. Black people think they've been disempowered. There's a sense across the country that we've lost control over our democracy or our Republican form of government, the sense that we have some power. That's, I think, the root of the crisis. And if you understand that, as the root of the crisis. I think it it suggests that the approach to solving the crisis is not more governments by experts or governments by elites, but actually figuring out a way to bring the people back into the day-to-day act of governing. And that's a lot of the work I'm doing. Uh, David uh, Van Raybrook, who was the keynote speaker at your conference, he, uh, he wrote a book called Against Elections, and, and he announces the diagnosis, Democratic Fatigue Syndrome. And in, in the past, democracy seemed the best or at least the least bad balance between legitimacy and efficiency. But, and he thinks that both sides have broken down, that politicians seem to be representing themselves, their party and special interests rather than the general public or w- with virtue, all the while getting very little done to solve our problems. Autocratic candidates are becoming more popular with the promise of cutting through all the checks and balances to make change happen, but at what cost and to whose benefit? And voter turnout is declining, further proof of citizen disengagement, apathy, and and possible despair. So is our system a democratic one that's failing, or could it be that our system is not as democratic as we were once taught? And I think the central question is, how democratic was it to begin with? I think we're all taught that, that not everyone had the vote. And so it was an aristocracy that was controlling everything. And really, it's hard, I think, even with some, an aristocrat with virtue to not represent their own interests first. Everyone became enfranchised eventually, but without necessarily gaining a whole lot of power in the process. So where David and I 
we, we agree on a lot. And David's a, a friend and, and someone I, I call a real, has been an inspiration. But one thing David and I agree on is that while elections are important and neither of us are against elections, although his book is called Against Elections, neither of us think that electoral democracy is the key to a good political system. By itself, not by itself. By itself. If you just go and vote every two or four years and you don't involve yourself in politics, you can call it a democracy. And in a way it is, it's a representative democracy. It's an electoral democracy, but there's not a whole lot of engagement and there's not a whole lot of a requirement that you actually practice and engage in politics. And that's what both David and I believe is important for various reasons. But the main one is that it's when you engage in politics that you have to talk to people you disagree with. And when you talk to people you disagree with, you have to come some compromise solutions and it teaches you, it trains you in the activity of compromise and of finding what we agree on despite our differences. Whether you're talking about a small town like Red Hook, New York, where I teach at Bard, where you have to get together and talk about, well, we need a new sewer system. Who's going to pay for it? How are we going to do it? And there's disagreements. And you can either just elect some people and let them make the decision, or you can bring the people of the town together and let them learn about it and talk about it and research it and get involved. What David is saying and, and what I'm saying is that if you want to create good citizens, if you want to create people who actually believe that government works and trust government and are involved in government, you've got to involve them in it more than just voting every two or four years. And you've got to train them to understand how you make such decisions amidst disagreement and amidst diversity and plurality. Who's going to pay for this thing? And you got to get them together. And the movement that David has really more than anybody initiated and in that I've become uh, someone who really supports. And we have a new center at Bard called the Democracy Innovation Hub dedicated to it, is this movement for something called citizen assemblies. Citizen assemblies uh, are most basically like a citizen jury. And in America, it's easy to understand because we all know what a jury is. In a jury, you bring some randomly selected people together, you put them on a jury, they hear the case, and then they go and they deliberate together and they make a verdict. And Alexis de Tocqueville in his great book, Democracy in America, said that the most important institution in American democracy was the jury. And the reason he said that is because, not because the jury always makes the right decision. He said, who knows, right? But he said, what the jury does is it brings nine everyday people into the jury room they deliberate with each other and they learn to put aside their private views and private interests and judge from the public interest. They talk to the judge, they talk to their other jurors, and they learn to elevate themselves above their, maybe what they would want and do what they think is just or what is right. Similarly, what a citizen assembly does is it takes a group of randomly selected people. It could be, we often use slightly larger numbers than a jury because you really want in a political decision, you want representation from a wide range of gender, race, income, etc. And you put them in a room 
You let them call experts. You let them learn about an issue, whether it's about sewers or abortion or immigration. And you let them deliberate over days or weeks. And then they make a decision and they come up with a consensus proposal uh, for how we should solve the problem of who's going to pay for the sewers and how we're going to put them in or how we're going to deal with immigration or how we're going to deal with uh, abortion. And again, it's not that the citizens always make the right choice, although shockingly, it's been people have been quite pleasantly surprised with the quality of decisions of these citizen assemblies. But it's that in the process of deliberation, learning, engaging, talking, people learn to do politics. They learn to put aside their private interests and try and make common cause and find a common interest or a public interest. And that is the essential virtuous activity of Republican citizenship and a small r Republican that we call democracy. So you have a, a kind of a greater legitimacy in a sense because it's randomly selected and therefore you can be more assured than in the typical electoral system that it's not dominated by special interests. And also my understanding is that with these deliberative assemblies, that people serve for a limited amount of time, like a jury does. Sometimes it might be longer than other times. There might be ones that only last for weeks, others that last maybe for a year or two, depending on the complexity of the the issue. Because it's set up randomly, and because you don't have people in there for life, that you have good reason to believe that at least it's not distorted. The decision-making is not distorted by special interests. So you have that advantage. You have the quality of the decision, and you also have the engagement aspect of it too. I think that's right. People make different arguments for why. So there's two aspects of this. One is the citizen assembly itself, right? And that's just that you bring a group of citizens together and and they deliberate together. The other is the use of a fancy word called sortition, which simply is like sorting. And it's the idea that you should select these people randomly by lottery. The reason you pick people by lottery is historically been that it's the only way to guarantee a representation that is more representative of the people. So elections, by their very nature, require that a small group of people run and get voted in by the majority. The problem with elections, let me not say the problem because some people like it, but one consequence of that is that the people who are going to run are generally people who have reputational advantages, who have some money, and are educated. Now, that's not 100% true, right? There are, every once in a while, you get someone who runs who's not educated and has very little reputation and doesn't have a lot of money, but it's rare. And so the truth is that you don't get many plumbers serving in Congress. Why? Not because plumbers don't vote or plumbers aren't smart. It's because plumbers generally vote for people who've gone to college and are seen by other people as reputable. 100% of our current Congress went to college. 
under 50% of the country has gone to college. What that means is the electoral system of representatives doesn't bring in a representative sample to govern. Now, the founders wanted it that way, right? They didn't trust. They wanted more established, educated, reliable people governing. They thought that was a good way to protect against demagoguery and the tyranny of the majority. And they, and they believed in aristocracy, which I didn't realize until I prepared for this interview, that it literally means rule by the best. And they thought, why shouldn't the best rule? Why should it be ruled by the common people, which is what democracy means? It should be ruled by the best. I don't know if they thought of rule by the best, but they certainly thought of rule by the better. You still have elections and you have to get elected. And it may be that the best person doesn't win. But generally, it will mean that at least the person who wins is at least one of the better, one of the aristocrats. And, and so they were very much opposed to having janitors and plumbers and other people in Congress. One advantage of using a lottery-based citizen assembly system is you bring a much wider variety of people into government. Now, as I said, there's some people who would see that as a disadvantage and they'll say, how can a plumber or a non-college educated person decide about the environment? It's a very complicated scientific question. Or how can they decide about immigration? It's very complicated. And the answer is that these kind of political questions don't require much expertise to make a judgment. They may require that some facts and they know some history. And the way you acquire those is just like in a jury. You bring in experts. You bring in people to testify. And at citizen assemblies, the members can bring in experts. And they can bring in experts that are um, provided for them, but they can also call their own experts. And the basic idea is that political judgment is not something that requires a college education. You can be a smart carpenter or a smart plumber or a smart janitor and still have great political judgment. And you can be a PhD and have terrible political judgment. I think it would be helpful at this point to hear about an example and maybe the um, example of Ireland dealing with some very controversial issues. I think both abortion and gay marriage, if I'm not mistaken, were handled with this method in Ireland. And it was, I think, a year-long process for at least one of them, quite a long process. And the decision made by the citizen assembly was not the final say, of course. It went eventually to a referendum. But somehow their deliberations and their conclusions were very well respected, enough to make a real big difference in what eventually happened. No, that's right. And Ireland was one of the first places where the modern sort of movement for citizen assemblies proved itself. And there are probably other places now that are more that are more interesting to talk about, like Belgium. But let's start with Ireland. You're right. Ireland is a, a very religious country, much of it Catholic and many conservative people in Ireland who were very against gay marriage and against abortion. And yet there were also many people who were for both those things. And these were, like in many places, deeply controversial and contested ideas, issues. And the Irish Commission, Constitutional Commission, decided to call a citizen assembly and bring in a hundred Irish citizens, randomly selected. They actually did something very interesting, which not all citizen assemblies do. They also brought in some members of the Irish political class uh, as well. And they got them together and had them 
deliberate and bring in experts. And they let any expert come in. They let pro-abortion, anti-abortion, they let pro-gay marriage, anti-gay marriage. And over the course of these deliberations, the Irish Citizen Assemblies, two different ones, made strong recommendations both to allow abortion and to legalize gay marriage. And these were done transparently. They were televised. They were open. And then the people of Ireland in referendum voted both to legalize abortion and legalize gay marriage. And this was to many people a proof of concept. Again, I want to be clear that it's not that citizen assemblies always make what might be called a cosmopolitan or the liberal decision, right? I, I don't think that's the right argument for them. It's interesting that because these were the two big issues that Ireland picked up and they both got decided on what might be the more liberal or cosmopolitan side, liberal groups around the world have really embraced citizen assemblies much more than conservative groups, which is funny to me because in certain ways, citizen assemblies are a very conservative idea in the sense that they are trying to take back government for the people from largely college-educated elites who are often quite liberal. And it, struck, it strikes me that it's important to emphasize that a lot of people really found these Ireland-Irish decisions of citizen assemblies quite compelling. But it's not just that they made the decision that's liberal. It's that out of it, many of these people who were in these Irish citizen assemblies then decided to run for office. They became engaged in politics. It, it created a sense that politics can work, that politics can lead to consensus and compromise. And that's what I find so compelling about citizen assemblies. But yeah, the Irish example has been extremely powerful. And what you see now are, especially in Europe, and the most advanced by far is Belgium, and that's where and that's where David Van Raybrook, your speaker, was from. Yes, David is a brilliant writer. He does a lot of things, but he's become an enormous advocate for this. And partly through that, he's had an impact in Belgium. And in parts of Belgium, citizen assemblies are now may have been made into permanent parts of the government. And members of randomly selected citizens now sit on assemblies that propose legislation, that make comments on legislation, that in, are involved in committees now even, discussing legislative ideas. They still have their representative government, their electoral representative government, but they've begun to incorporate permanent citizen assemblies that obviously the people on them, it's like a grand jury, they come and go, but they've now become part of the functioning governmental institutional system. It's essentially, it's as if it's a branch of the government, or maybe it is. Yeah, I'm careful about that because you don't want to think of it in the United States as an unconstitutional act, right? We have the we have three branches of the government. You can't change that. But there's no there's nothing stopping Congress from creating a, a citizen assembly that would propose laws to it. As long as the Congress is the body that's passing them or not, there's nothing to, that would prevent Congress from calling the Citizen Assembly or the president from calling the Citizen Assembly or the governor of New Mexico from calling the Citizen Assembly or the Congress of New Mexico, right? So I don't think you have to, you don't have to replace these institutions, but they can use the Citizen Assembly idea to empower them and to enrich what they're doing. 
Yeah, you mentioned about constitution. If I'm not mistaken, there have been citizen assemblies in other countries that are proposing and leading to changes in the country's constitution. So it can be taken that far. I think it would be difficult to do it in the United States just because it's so difficult to change the constitution. But in other countries where it's a bit easier, it's being used for that purpose. Yeah. Again, in the United States, we do in the constitution, we have a process for changing the constitution. And it requires a large supermajority of either states, of states overseeing it. Yeah, I think it's three quarters of the states, I think. Yeah. But you could certainly, if you wanted to create a citizen assembly to amend the constitution or change the constitution, you could in in the sense that they could propose ideas and that would have to then be. But I am not at this point advocating that we change the constitution to incorporate citizen assemblies into them. I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I think that's a long way away. I would just like to see our current governmental bodies, both on a local state and federal level, begin to use citizen assemblies. And that's for really two major reasons. One is I think it will help make politics work. It will find consensus, whereas so much of our politics is really caught in a kind of paralysis of the inability to govern because we just disagree about so much. And because the power elites are have become so entrenched, and that the, this seems to be a more and more of a ethos of non-compromise, that compromising is losing somehow. Exactly. So that's one is I think that it will actually allow government to work. And the second is, I think that the more people participate in citizen assemblies, the more they will come to understand and experience what does it mean to actually try and talk to people you disagree with and find common ground instead of just trying to, you know, demand what you think is the ultimate right answer. One of the one of the great examples that David von when David von Raybrook and I co-taught a course a number of years ago, he came in the first day and said to the students, "All right, pick an issue," and they picked healthcare, and he said, "All right, rate the United States healthcare system on a system one to ten, and most of them picked one or two, whatever." And he said, "All right." write down what a 10 would be. What would be your perfect healthcare system? And they all wrote down whatever it was, socialist this or fully funded that or whatever. And he said, all right, now imagine that you think we're at a one or a two and that's a 10. How would you get to a three? And that was like a light bulb moment for me, right? Because politics is not a going from one to 10. It's going from one to two and then two to three. It's about learning how to make the system better by acting together, by learning to talk to each other and finding common ground, right? One of the, one of the things that I think has done, has gone, one of the only things that has gone well, or that's been done well in the last few years of politics is that finally after years and years of dysfunction, two years ago, we passed a bill on gun control. Now, was it a perfect bill on gun control? Absolutely not. My ideas would be much more, much more, much stronger gun control, but it made some progress. And I look at that and say, that's 
a model for how politics works. You can't sit there and say, I'm only going to sign a bill on immigration if it gives me the wall, or I'm only going to sign a bill on immigration if we let every asylum seeker in. you got to figure out how to find common ground. And that's what, to me, so much of politics is and what we've lost in this country because politics has become about a kind of extremist. We support the extremes. Yeah, it's like a boxing match. Where, you know, like a boxing match where one side has to get knocked out. There's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it has to do with social media. Some of it has to do with propaganda. But a lot of it has to do with basic institutional gerrymandering. Over 90% of the districts in this congressional districts in the United States right now are safe districts. So in other words, in addition to sortition as, as an option for in re- revitalizing democracy, there's also changes that we could make in the electoral system. Uh, th- things like uh, ranked choice voting and uh, open primaries. There are different things that can maybe mitigate against the gerrymandered extremism that, that, that comes from that. I, I just was uh, wanted to mention, uh, because we, we're going to run out of time, I, I really want to get to some things. I, I want to talk also about how it works. Like you mentioned about David Van Raybrook posing these questions to the group that were very helpful. And it sounds like in, in Ireland and other places, there is a facilitator. So it's not it's different than a jury. A jury is a group of peers. Maybe there's a foreman, but it's a really a group process. But in citizen assemblies, it seems like it's really important to have skilled facilitators moving things along, as well as coordinating, because you might have a large group that's broken up into smaller groups, and the small groups come back together. It's a pretty complicated social process. And, and I can imagine there being a lot of fighting about how to structure it. That's a great question. And let me say that when I teach these classes where we have students design citizen assemblies and they think, oh, it's going to be easy. It's not easy. And there's a lot of questions involved. Everything from how you do the lottery and should there be a weighted lottery and should we always try and get gender, racial, class equity or how do you do it to many others. And one question is the structure of the facilitation. A lot of the current citizen assemblies are run by nonprofits and the nonprofits provide facilitators. And these facilitators are designed and trained to encourage deliberation, to encourage people to talk to each other, listen to each other. And a lot of citizen assemblies, we start with exercises that have nothing to do with the topic, right? Let's say you're talking about abortion or immigration. We simply start by having people go around the table and say what's important to them in their life, get to know each other, build trust. And, and a lot of it is that. Then once you start getting into the issue, the facilitator is there to try and say, listen, I understand you're upset, but listen, let's listen to each other. Let's talk to each other. How do we make sure that all the different sides get their views out? If there's some people there who are pretty quiet, how do we let them get their opinions into the room. And so the facilitators do that. There's a danger in that facilitation that these facilitators consciously or unconsciously represent a bias. And one thing that some citizen assemblies have begun to do, especially permanent citizen assemblies, is say that they want to hire their own facilitators, right? Kick out the ones that were provided and hire their own. Or They could do things like what you said about a jury, choose someone from within the group 
to be a facilitator, right? The point is a lot of these citizen assemblies become self-governing. They create a governance committee in which people from the citizen assembly are then either randomly or not randomly chosen to be on a governance committee, which make their own rules. And you start to see some pretty cool radical experiments in government and democracy. Yeah, so it's not necessarily any less messy than democracy, electoral democracy is. It's complicated. It can vary quite a bit from group to group and country to country and scale to scale. And sometimes it probably works quite well. And other times it may not work so well. Maybe it gets dominated by one of the participants or maybe there's, it gets disrupted by one of the participants. So maybe the facilitation is not so great. It's, it's not a magic bullet. It's not a magic bullet, but just like juries can sometimes work well, sometimes not work well. But the idea and the hope is that it brings people back into the process. It gives people confidence again in government. I think one of the most interesting things about it is when you interview people after they've served on one of these, it takes a lot of time. They don't get paid much. And that depends. There are some situations where the pay is much higher in order to not discourage people from joining. Yeah, but it's hard to pay them a lot. These things cost a lot of money. But yeah, but what's amazing is how much fun people have doing them and how valuable the vast majority of people who participate in citizen assemblies rave about them. And they create, they create alumni groups where they stay in touch and they talk to each other. Some run for office and then they support each other. It's really what it, it, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams used to talk about how when they go to heaven, they would be in a parliament in heaven because that's the most fun thing they ever imagined. <laughs> most people today don't think of Congress or politics as fun. And what's cool, I, what I love about citizens, one of the things I love about citizen assemblies is that they're fun. They bring people back into the idea that dirty, complicated, messy politics is actually exciting and fun. And it retrains people in how to be political beings, which is what I think we've lost. Yeah, both fun and meaningful at the same time. What a great combination. I, I wanted to also mention that there was another figure. We talked a lot about David uh, Van Raybrook, but there was also actually an earlier neo-sorticianist, <laughs> if I can coin that phrase, James Fishkin, who started uh, revised, uh, re reviving the city in the late 1980s. So quite a while ago, he organized deliberative assemblies in 28 countries, and he was in Texas. And in Texas, citizens gathered to deliberate about alternative energy with striking results. And those in favor of developing it rose from 52 to 84%. And as a result, there are more windmills in Texas than in any other state. So it's, that's really quite a remarkable thing. And, I guess it didn't really catch on to the extent that it might have. And, and I guess with David's efforts, it's catching on more strenuously, I would say. So yeah, James Fishkin developed this idea of what he called participatory polling. And his one-liner at the time was, opinion polls tell you what people believe when they're not thinking, and participatory polls tell you what people believe after they've thought about it and deliberated about it. And these participatory polls that he's done are very much like citizen assemblies in that they bring people together and they ask them to deliberate and think, and then they ask their opinion. The difference between participatory polling and citizen assemblies in a nutshell is that citizen assemblies actually make a claim to making policy and to 
at least are proposing policy, that they're designed to not just tell you what people believe, like a poll or even a participatory poll, but to actually come up with political solutions that can then either be voted on or, or implemented. But yeah, what James Fishkin has done, and he was one of the real innovators of this in the United States, is incredibly uh, important and impressive. There have been other groups that have been working on citizen assemblies in the shadows of the United States, but none of them with the success of James Fishkin's participatory polling. What I like to say and add to what James has done, and I think he's done great things, is that it's not just about taking a poll. I think these citizen assemblies need to be integrated into our understanding of self-government. That's what David von Raybrook and some others have begun to do, especially in Europe, and what I think we need to start to do in the United States. Rewinding the tape a little bit and talking about ancient times again, Aristotle thought that electoral systems were inherently going to encourage aristocracy to rule. And that he thought it was undemocratic, actually. And it was the sortition process, ruling by lots, was actually the democratic process. It's really interesting. And I think that you mentioned this at the beginning of the conference, how when you were introduced to the idea, you were just amazed and hadn't really heard of it so much before, hadn't really thought about it that much. And the same is true for me. And I really only learned about this maybe a year ago. But it's really seems almost a fixed notion in the Western world that democracy means elections. And it's you have to wrap your mind around this other idea. But we've always been taught. We've always been taught that elections is the way people get represented. You mean there's another way? And I, I don't know if that's the main obstacle or is it that the vested interest will fight it? It just seems like such a, once you learn about it, such a promising road to go down. It's, it, and it seems to be proving itself over and over again in, in the recent years. What, what's in the way, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, that's a good question. So you're absolutely right. And what you're talking about is what a political theorist who probably did was the first person to really bring out this undemocratic aspect of election. And he's the person who very much influenced David von Raybrook is a guy named Bernard Manin. He wrote a book called The Principles of Representative Government in 1997. And in it, he develops what he calls the principle of distinction, which I described earlier without naming it, which is that generally electoral democracies elect people who are elites, people who are respected and wealthier and, and not the common people, which is why Aristotle, Montesquieu, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, almost anyone who wrote about these issues thought that elections were anti-democratic because elections would always elect elites. And that if you wanted to have a democracy, they said you needed to choose the representatives through some sort of a lottery-based system. It was the only way to bring a wider, more democratic voices into politics. I explained a bit why the founders chose not to have a democratic system. They wanted a republican system, one that would be geared towards a kind of a, a belief that you'd, you'd pick the best people and the better people because you don't want a kind of demagoguery. And often these lottery-based Democrat democracies throughout history didn't last very long, and they wanted to create a lasting republic, not just a, a democratic republic. 
I'm wondering, what was the reason for not lasting very long? Was it because of the system or was it because they got conquered? <laughs> no, it was because of maybe some of both, but mostly the system. Plato tells the, the story of the, you know, the sort of cycle of governments in, in, in books eight and nine and eight and nine of the Republic. When it, in a democracy, some people start to get power and other people don't like it. And then a demagogue emerges and he or he or she, but he mostly leads the people astray. But the basic idea is that people are led by emotions. They get angry, they get jealous. Uh, and in a democracy, there's always going to be rich and poor and the poor are going to be jealous of the rich and the rich are going to be protective against the poor. And eventually there will, there will either be, a, the, the rich will win and it'll turn into an aristocracy or the poor will win and you'll turn into a, a tyranny or a demagoguery. I'd like to read a paragraph uh, from uh, David Van Raybuck's uh, book, and it really speaks to this uh, kind of dilemma about how to think of the common people. Are the common people uneducated, unwise, uh, unruly, or is it that they rise to what's expected of them? So he writes, treat responsible citizens as, as ballot fodder, and they'll behave like ballot fodder, but treat them as adults, and they'll behave like adults. The bond between government and the governed is no longer the same as that between parents and children. We are all adults now, and politicians would do well to look past the barbed wire, trust the citizens, take their emotions seriously, and value their experience. Invite them in, give them power, and because it will always be fair, take all their names and draw lots. Yeah, I happen to agree with him. There's this old tradition in the United States of America called the yeoman farmer, right? The sort of uneducated farmer who nevertheless knows a lot about farming and comes to the town hall meetings and participates in self-government. I'm a big believer that whether you're a janitor or a plumber or a, a rancher or a farmer or a professor or a lawyer or a businessman, you may have very different knowledge, but you all have knowledges. And it's not necessarily the case that the businessmen are smarter than the farmers. In fact, it may be the opposite. But certainly on politics, there's nothing that says that people who are good at making profit are good at politics. And there's nothing that says that people are bad or good at growing corn are good or bad at politics. And like David, I believe that the point is to bring all the people in. There may be exceptions, people who have mental illnesses or people who are extreme, who, who won't sit still or won't sit in a room or beat people up or whatever. You're going to have to make some limits. It's not a, but within reason, bring all the people in and let them talk and deliberate. I, a lot, I think the, you asked what the biggest obstacle to this is. And the biggest obstacle is elitism. There's a number of faculty around the country who are arguing that the answer to our problem with democracy is less democracy. They said the problem is that we're letting too many people vote and we should go back to having tests to determine you should be able to have to pass a test before you can vote or whatever. And I think there's a lot of people on the left right now who believe that the problem with American democracy right now is that you have these uneducated, what Hillary Clinton would call the deplorables or what other people would call the sort of MAGA voter. And that these people are idiots and morons and don't know what they're talking about. And I understand that view, but I think it's wrong. I think there are some people who on the MAGA movement side who are maybe just deeply problematic in there, but not most of them. I think most of them are angry. They feel disempowered. 
but also they feel deeply that the country has gotten away from its roots of self-government. They think that there's too many elite bureaucrats, elite civil servants running things. And they realize that Donald Trump, most of them, many of them realize that Donald Trump is a bull in the China shop, is a, a criminal. I think he is a criminal, is a, a, a destabilizing force. And yet they believe, I think wrongly, but they believe that electing him is the only way to, in a sense, dismantle some of this system, which they think of as so disempowering. But then you don't get to the incremental change you were talking about earlier. You get to something much more dangerous. So that's the point. I think if we had a system in which people could come together and, and talk and deliberate, I think we could find some middle ground. Right now, all we have is two choices. And the two choices are, are no one. The truth is, I think the vast majority of Americans don't like either. They, don't, they hate the choice we're being given between Trump and Biden. They don't want it. No one, so few people want this election. Yeah. So some people would say that we uh, need to teach, a, do a better job of teaching civics in, in public school. But I think I'm, I'm not quite sure that there'd be enough interest. And, and I know that they were some civics classes so where my kids went to school and they were so poorly taught that I don't think it made much of, a, of an impact. But where you, where you have the deliberative democracy idea you have people learning by doing, by actually doing something meaningful and important and, and with consequence. So that, that's, uh, I think that really makes a difference. I also wanted to talk about, you know, you have the different phases of the process. You have the listening, listening to experts, and you have deliberating, listening to each other. You have decision-making, a voting or consensus, and then you have communication to public officials, a legislative body, or to a public referendum. I'm just wondering, though, how do you devise a system that makes good use of modern technology, meaning social media? I mean, this is a very new thing compared to when th these ideas were first implemented in ancient Greece or in, in Renaissance Europe. It seems like it would be important to use that in a way that involves more and more people, and yet you don't want it to cont contaminate the process. So what, what would you say is the best way to go about it? It's a great question. The first technology that's really being used in this way not the first, but the one that's become by far the gold standard is a piece of software called Polis, P-O-L dot I-S. It's open source. Any government can use it. The government of Taiwan, the government of Great Britain, and some other governments are already using it actively in their system. And the, the way it works is, let's say you have a policy question. So in Taiwan, there was a big question of whether Uber should be allowed in Taiwan. And there was a lot of disagreement about it. And so they posted a question on Polis and people in Taiwan could give their opinion. And then there are ways in which the opinions get liked, right? By other people or disliked. And two things happen. One, the ones that are liked the most and disliked the least move up. But the, the real secret sauce is that the ones that are liked by people who seem to be based on their opinions on opposite sides get pushed up the most. The ones that sort of are able to bring a wider range of people together. And, and this Polis software has been incredibly successful and useful at finding those 
opinions and articulated policy positions that are not only the most popular, but that unite the broadest range of voters. I, the man who developed Polis is a guy named Colin McGill, and he's spoken at the RN Center two or three times, and he and I have been collaborating. What I would like to do is, in some sense, figure out how to combine Polis and in-person civic assemblies. I'm a big believer that in-person deliberation is actually essential to this process, but I think you can use Polis both to get a wider group of people's opinions in the room and maybe also in the room as well. There are both Harvard, MIT, and I'm sure other places are working on new proprietary, or I don't know, open source, but new systems that would be addition to Polis. But as far as I know right now, Polis is the most widely used and, and I think the gold standard right now for technology being used in this way. And it's open. You can just go to their website, download the software, and you can use it in any for any kind of what they call deliberative or civic poll that you would like. Yeah, it seems to me that that a desirable endpoint would be that these deliberations would become so interesting and and engaging that that more and more people would tune in to them. I think so. And I don't know. I don't know how that will happen, but we can wish for in it. Taiwan, they're widely used, and they're used by the government to find out where to find the people's opinion about where there might be consensus on hotly contested issues. I, and I think that's the key is if it's a hotly contested issue, if it's a controversial issue that grabs people's attention. And if they knew that these deliberative assemblies had some power actually, and they weren't just talking heads, there would be an interest, I think, in seeing what's happened. I agree. Anyway, unfortunately, we're, we've run out of time. Roger Berkowitz, Professor of Political Studies and Human Rights and the founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center of Politics and the Humanities at Bard College. We've been here talking about revitalizing democracy through deliberative assemblies. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. My pleasure. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.